Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. The Catechism, as we go through these Lord's Days, continues to uh, work through the different controversies of Christianity, if you will. Uh, one controversy, obviously, if we think about the scandal, as we think about the cross of Christ. Um, if we removed uh, the cross of Christ from the gospel, it would be a much more palatable uh, message, wouldn't it? I mean, we can make Christ a teacher. We can make him a rabbi. Uh, we wouldn't have to talk about the death. We wouldn't have to talk about the resurrection. In fact, some argue that it's actually better just to talk about Christ as an ethical teacher and to follow his ethics. And so we, we might be tempted to do that. It might seem that it's going to make the church more influential or for whatever reason. However, the catechism does not give us this option. The catechism makes it very plain, uh, very simple, easy for us to understand that the cross of Christ is essential for our Christian walk. And so again, when we think about our redemption, we can think, well, do we really need to talk about the cross of Christ? Is that really essential to say Paul's theology or the theology of the New Testament or the theology of the Old Testament? Or is this something that we say, well, as a man-made tradition, uh, we need to promote this because this is right. And so what do we truly find in terms of what the catechism is teaching us? What is the significance of Christ and the cross of Christ? And is this really so essential for our Christian life? As we look at this, we'll see first, he was under a curse, he was sentenced, secondly, and he redeemed. And so I think you can see where I'm going with this, and obviously uh, I don't think that the cross of Christ is something we can cut out of Christianity and see as a non-essential. It's very essential to the faith. And so let's begin then with he was under a curse. A question answered 37 in the Heidelberg Catechism wants us to understand the incarnation of Christ. And what we mean by that is simply Christ being God from eternity taking on the flesh. He's incarnate. Uh, you, you can tangibly, visibly see God. Uh, he has a flesh just like we have. But this catechism question and answer 37 also wants us to understand uh, that Christ did this for a reason. Uh, some say that when we talk about uh, this Lord's Day in the Catechism or the Catechism in general, that there is no understanding of the passive obedience of Christ. So we can say that Christ has faith going to the cross, confident the Father is going to raise him because of his faithfulness, and therefore that's what our faith needs to emulate. This is an argument that's put forth, not my argument. This is not something I'm persuaded by. But nevertheless, people appeal uh, to the catechism and say, this is actually what the Heidelberg Catechism would, would teach. And now it's true that when we talk about the catechism, it doesn't use the language of passive and active obedience. So when we use these terms uh, in referring to Christ, uh, the passive obedience, 
would be the obedience of Christ where he submits to the Father's will and endures death. Uh, that's Christ passively on the cross, bearing the Father's wrath. The act of obedience is where Christ consciously fulfills and obeys the law of God. Now, when we look at the catechism, once again, going into Ursinus' commentary, I won't go through all the quotes of Ursinus, but Ursinus, the writer of the catechism, who was commissioned to write the catechism with Caspar Livianus, so Ursinus being the, the scholar, uh, the theologian, the, the professor, and Olivianus being the preacher, the pastor, uh, Ursinus writes this, and I'll, I'll summarize, that when he defines passion, so when he's speaking of passion, the suffering of Christ, he's saying, what do we understand by the passion or suffering of Christ? And when he understands, as he says, the whole humiliation of Christ or the obedience of his whole humiliation, all the miseries, infirmities, griefs, torments, and infirmities uh, to which he was subject for our sake, for the moment of his birth, even to the hour of his death, as well in soul and body. And so when you understand the backdrop and, and the thinking and the writing of this Lord's Day, we, we may not specifically use passive and active obedience in our language, but the essence of it is there. It's the understanding that Christ actively fulfills the obligations of the law of God and goes to the cross and endures the wrath of the Father as a perfect sacrifice. Now, we don't need to just go straight to Ursinus' commentary. Notice what our catechism tells us. Uh, what does he suffer? Humiliation. So the very fact that Christ takes on the flesh is a suffering in and of itself. He comes in the form of a creature using Paul's words, not saying it's a different flesh, but what Paul's emphasizing is Christ comes in the same exact flesh we have. That's humbling. He is God. He is a creator. He feels and experiences the want and poverty. Christ knows what it's like to be in need. And we have also there injuries. He understands pain. He understands hunger, temptation. He understands death. He understands the anguish of hell. And so when we think of Christ and what he has done, the point is his whole life is a life of suffering until the resurrection and glorification. And so we have to think of Christ obeying the law of God. There's a consciousness. There's, there's an understanding of, of, of a purpose behind his life. He's living his life to be that perfect, that perfect sacrifice. So when we say, okay, well then there's the the understanding of this suffering, there's the understanding of this active obedience. How do we really know that this is really fully the, the passion and understanding? Well, as Ursinus goes on in his, in his commentary, in this Lord's Day, he emphasizes that first, Christ comes to endure the eternal wrath. He's conscious of his mission. Uh, secondly, he suffered for our sins, not his own. So he has to take away that curse. And third, he says that the passion of Christ is a ransom, the only propitiatory or payment uh, for our sins. The suffering of others do not partake of his character, but are merely punishment or trials or attestations to the truth of the gospel. The point that Ursinus is making is that it is obvious that Christ has to suffer to take away our sins. Uh, so as Christ does this, we say, okay, 
So we understand this is what the catechism says. If you turn to someone who's a critic and say, well, our catechism teaches this. A critic's going to say, well, that's a man-made document. That's, that's not really persuasive. And if they say, well, the catechism's a summation of the Word of God, they say, well, what's it summarizing? How is it establishing this very point? And this is where we turn to Galatians 3 once again. And we have this note, as we said last time, that there's these agitators in the church. It seems that this is a circumcision party of the Judaizers who are uh, coming into the church. Maybe there's a member in the church that is stirring up this trouble. Maybe it's people from the outside who have uh, come in and are stirring up this trouble. But whatever the case, they seem to be saying that the Old Testament law, everything about the Old Testament, we have to abide by this. And as we abide by this, we truly have Christ. And as we do this, we have the fullness and the, in, and the expectations of what Christ truly desires for us. And so I think it's, it's important to understand this backdrop as Paul is interacting with people and say, we need to be under the Mosaic Law. We need to place ourselves under that. And as we place ourselves under that, we have the fullness and the expectation of what Christ came to establish. And so when we hear that, it's, it's important to note that, that in that very statement, there, there's an undermining, uh, a dismissing of the significance of Christ's work, isn't there? I mean, it's, it's an assumption that what Christ did really isn't that important. Uh, so modern people can say, well, this is a modern criticism. We're more advanced. And so when we evaluate the cross of Christ, we do this because we're wise, we're smart, we're understanding. When you turn to Galatians, you turn to the church in Corinth, this isn't a modern struggle. The church in the first century, even at the time of the Apostle Paul, who witnessed the resurrected Christ, the, there are people who very much doubt the validity and significance of Christ's resurrection and death on the cross. And so when, when Paul writes to the Galatian church, he draws this contrast between the spirit and the flesh. Now, uh, when Paul talks about flesh in his writings, some people say, see, this is a Gnostic document. Uh, Paul is talking about the, the greater spiritual power and just a greater spirit, and he's saying the flesh is dead and doesn't matter. That's not Paul's theology. When Paul contrasts the spirit to the flesh, and you go through Galatians and, and you read this, the contrast is simply this. The flesh is working out your redemption in your own strength trying to place yourself under the Mosaic order. He'll go on to talk about the law, the promise, the difference between the two sons of Abraham and, and Sarah and versus Ishmael with Hagar. One's the son of a promise, one's the son of the flesh. And so that's working out your salvation in your own strength. So in Galatians, that's one uh, part of what we see in the flesh, that it's just as bad to be a legalist. Now, when you go on to Galatians 5 and 6, you understand that the flesh is also giving in to, to natural, sinful desires. And so the flesh for Paul is bad in the sense of giving in to the fall and also working out our redemption in our own strength. And so when Paul writes to the Galatian church, it's important to understand that, uh, that he's laying out to them, we don't want to work out our salvation in our own flesh, and our own works, and our own deeds. And we don't want to give in to the flesh in the sense of just uh, giving ourselves over to our sin. But now when we go down, we skip to Galatians 3, verse 13. 
We just look at a couple points of this verse briefly. He speaks of Christ redeemed us. Now the redemption, if he's referring to the Roman law, uh, redemption would be uh, buying yourself out of your time of enlistment in the Roman army. Uh, somebody could pay and they're no longer in the army. Redemption can also refer back to the Old Testament case law where you would buy someone out of slavery. Either way, it's someone having an obligation to be in a situation they do not want to be in. So whether you've been uh, forced, uh, compelled to serve in a Roman army, whether you've sold yourself into slavery, which could also be a concept of this even in Rome, but more so what we find with Israel, that this redemption is getting yourself out of a dire situation and moving someone to a better situation. And so when we understand it's Christ who has redeemed us, and as Christ is the one who redeems us, what does he do? What's the transfer that goes on here? From the curse of the law. So he's telling us, if the Galatian uh, church is experiencing what the Judaizers desire for them, place yourself under the law of Moses, then you're going to have the full blessings of Christ. He's saying, actually, if we go back to that Mosaic arrangement, we're placing ourselves under a curse. And he's saying, and as we place ourselves under a curse, we're saying Christ really didn't redeem us. And so Paul's not laying out in either or. It's not, well, maybe I'll have some works righteousness, maybe I'll have uh, some grace of Christ, and I'll kind of mingle these things together. Paul's saying, listen, either you place yourself under the obligation of the law, but then you have to keep the whole law. You're going to end up cursed. Christ is the one who has redeemed you from that curse. And so when we take the, the life of Christ seriously, we're, we're learning from verse 13 already, the Apostle Paul has an understanding that Christ has done something. A transaction has taken place, a legal transaction, that we have actually been purchased out of slavery, out of enlistment in an army. However you, you want to say it, we have moved from a dire situation that we don't want to be in to a good situation. And so Paul is saying we don't want to minimize this. But going on then, when we deal with question answer 38, because again, people can say, well, why do we have to go through the theatrics of Pontius Pilate? Is this historically really that significant? Uh, we don't really find the historic records we really want to find for this. Um, and the reality is, you've got to understand, this isn't a big area in terms of the Roman Empire. So if someone comes to you and says, well, we don't have the historic records that we want. First of all, this isn't an area that's really all that significant. Uh, this is an event that's significant for us in terms of Christianity. But in terms of, of Roman world history, it's a small blip on the radar. Furthermore, do you really think Rome wants to keep a record of this miscarriage of justice? I mean, you, you have a governor who doesn't really want to sentence this guy to death. He figures if he flogs this guy, the people are going to back off and say, whoa, we've kind of gone too far with this already. And there's a good chance he's going to die just from that. And, and then you, you don't want him then uh, being, you know, further indicted in a record with Christ going to the cross. Uh, so when people say, well, I, I don't really know if there's a historic record, 
I look at this and I say, well, our catechism is telling us this is fundamentally important. Because we have a record of an earthly priest or, or an earthly judge condemning Christ. And I think it's very significant in terms of the gospel records. So people say there's no historic reality. A thing you need to call to their attention and say, well, that's 19th century liberalism. When you get to the newer concept of, you know, critical theology or criticizing the validity of Scripture, actually people say Scripture shows itself to be historically accurate. And so there's actually people starting to value the historic record of Scripture. So what do we have in all the Gospels? Well, in two of the four Gospels, we have the birth of Christ. Now, I don't want to say the birth of Christ is insignificant. It's very significant. Every gospel writer has an incarnation theology. In other words, every gospel writer wants to communicate that Christ is God and Christ is man. But the gospel writers, every single one of them, includes a record of Christ being condemned by Pontius Pilate. John's gospel is probably the most dramatic, and I mean that in a good sense, uh, not in a sense of being dismissive, but in the sense that there really is a, a story developing there, a dialogue, more of an interaction in terms of the detail and the contrast of the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of the age to come, and Christ establishing that kingdom. But all the gospel writers make the point that it's Pontius Pilate who sentences Christ to death. And what does Pontius Pilate say about Christ? I find no guilt in this man, or I find this man innocent. And so Pontius Pilate, as a catechism rightly understands, is a very significant figure. He is an earthly judge who becomes an ironic Gentile priest. Not in the sense that he's making a sacrifice, not in the sense that I'm undermining the history of Israel, but in the sense that he looks upon the sacrifice of God and pronounces the goodness of the sacrifice of Christ. So it's very important. He's saying this man is innocent, He's not guilty. He doesn't deserve the horror of what I'm about to do. But nevertheless, uh, just by the pressures of the city to avert a riot, I might end up beheaded or I can send this guy to death. I would rather send him to death than bring about my own demise. Obviously not a proper way of carrying out justice, but nevertheless, that's what we find in, in the narratives of that. And so it is an earthly judge sentencing him to death. We say, okay, so what is Paul telling us in Galatians 3? We, we know the gospel writers certainly uh, see this as a significant event, but what is Paul saying? Well, if you look at the apostle Paul, he goes on in verse 13 and says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So notice there, or hanged on a tree. When you look at that, you say, okay, what's the point of that? Up to this point, we've seen that Christ has redeemed us, moved us from a dire situation to a good situation. Christ now, uh, being the one who's hanged upon a tree, is referring back to the Old Testament case law of Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23. And in terms of this, uh, when someone is uh, committing a heinous offense, or one of the more heinous offenses in Israel, after having the trial, finding that the witnesses are credible, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person was sentenced to death. When a person was sentenced to death, they were hung upon a tree. And they were hung upon a tree, saying to the community, this is what happens when you transgress God's law. 
He does not tolerate sinners. This individual is accursed of God, and this individual is one who deserves death. So here we have the Apostle Paul saying this is why Christ entered history, to redeem us from the curse of the law, to be the one who is hung upon a tree. And, and why is he hung upon a tree? Because he's the one who becomes a curse for us. And so this is a transaction. The curse we deserve goes to Christ. He's a perfect sacrifice, has done nothing wrong. His righteousness comes to us. This is why we talk about that double imputation, that, that double crediting, the double payment. Our sin goes to him, his righteousness comes to us. Now if we go on, and we learn from Numbers 35, verse 34, uh, that when you look at the, the nature of the sinner and, and who the sinner is, the sinner is the one who's going to receive the sanction. The sinner is going to receive the punishment. Christ being perfect, declared innocent, has done nothing wrong. Christ Jesus is a fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham. So when Christ is placed upon the cross, and, and we're getting into question answer 39, this is not accidental. In the providence of God, this is intentional. And it's intentional to show that Christ is the one who definitively took the curse for us. So now if we back up and, and, and we add to Paul's argument, so you want to place yourself under the Mosaic law? You want to undergo circumcision? Well, do you want to also undergo the curse of being hung upon a tree and being identified as a covenant breaker? Do, do you want that? And the answer is no, I, I don't want that. I, I want Christ's redemption. I want his payment. I don't want to be the one who is declared cursed. And so there, there's a reason for the crucifixion testifying to reality, Christ is cursed of God. Secondly, we know that the Lord's curse uh, that, that's destined for us because of Adam's fall has been taken away. And third, we can understand this theology of the tree also being something significant in terms of Scripture. We think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that leads to condemnation and death. We think of the tree of life that we partake of in the glory of heaven. So in terms of Christ being hung upon this tree, we think about the significance of Scripture unfolding and, and what that looks like. We truly have life in our Lord as He is the one who is hung and strung upon the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of death or curse. So going on then, as we put this all together, moving to uh, question answer 39, trying to, take, trying to take verses 10 through 13 uh, together. Because question 39 is dealing then with the impact of Christ's work even today. That it's the assurance uh, that everything that, that threatens us, everything that we think stands in the way, the very curse that I deserve or, or we all deserve has truly been removed. That's what 39 is driving home. It's not the work of Christ was good for the Apostle Paul and it was good for the first century. But it's had its expiration. Now we, we need to add to the work of Christ, right? I mean, you, you could hear someone trying to make that argument. Well, this is not what I believe. This is not what the catechism believes. It's not what the catechism is teaching us. It's saying the, the curse of Christ, that he endured one time on the cross, his one-time resurrection is good for all ages. It secures all his people. The curse has truly been removed from us. 
So then we put this in the context of what the Apostle Paul is saying. The issue prior to this is where we have this issue of who is a son of Abraham. How do we become sons of Abraham? Well, you have in verse 9, those who have faith are those who are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. So as the Apostle Paul is laying this out, he wants us to understand this contrast and why he wanted to put it uh, or put these verses in the context of chapter 3. We don't have life by our works. We have life in the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul is not reversing or contradicting John. You know, John says you have to first be regenerate, then receive faith. Somebody can appeal to Galatians 3 and say it's by faith we receive the Spirit. Well, we have to understand the argument the Apostle Paul's making here. He wants us to understand, like Abraham, who believed in the promise of God, that's when he needed to have life. It wasn't produced by his flesh. It didn't come about in his power. It came about by the grace of God. It is God who has done this. So for Paul's concern, it's what I have already said about flesh and spirit. Flesh is working out our salvation, our own strength, up to this point in Galatians. Paul wants us to understand we're not going to work out our redemption in our own strength. It's only in the power of the Spirit. As we take hold of Christ by faith, we are identified as sons of Abraham. And so, notice and even as we back this up, how did Abraham come to believe? Well, he believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness, uh, citing and recalling for us Genesis 15, verse 6. And so, clearly, this identity of who we are as sons of Abraham is important. Paul wants us to understand it's not by our works, not by our flesh. So putting this in the context of verses 10 through 13, okay, so if we want to rely on our works, we understand the consequence of that. We are under the curse of the law. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So when Paul Sight says he wants us to understand the Mosaic order. And he's recalling for us the, the very standard of Moses. You, you want to have life? You want to submit to the law? You better do it perfectly. Because if you have one misstep, you're going to end up on a tree. You're going to be cursed of God, and you're going to be cut off. So Paul's saying to the Galatian church, let's think about the logical outcome of this. Do you really want that? Is that where you want to end up? Now notice how Paul builds his argument. And he says, listen, it's obvious no one's really justified before God by the law. Right? He's saying, listen, what's the outcome of Israel? Are they living in triumph? God calls them, brings them to the land two times. Do they secure the land perfectly? No. They fail. Now the Apostle Paul wants us to understand. Before we say, well, this is just a New Testament doctrine. This is the nice God. The God of the Old Testament wasn't the nice God. Well, he recalls for us an important passage in Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Because he says, the righteous shall live by faith. So it's not just Genesis 15, 6 by implication. He's saying now we understand the prophet Habakkuk gave us this promise that we would be declared righteous by this faith because we're taking hold of Christ and his work. And so 
we understand then if we're going to try and do this and we're going to try and find life in herself, well, as he goes on in verse 12, uh, the one who does them is going to live by them. So again, it's recalling for us the Mosaic order. Are we really going to live by the standard? We're going to end up as those who are under the curse. This is where the very object of our faith in verse 13 that we have walked through becomes very important. We don't just have faith in faith. We don't just believe in the teachings of Christ. Uh, we, we have to follow the teachings of Christ, no doubt. But it's not just we study the teachings of Christ, I believe the teachings of Christ, therefore I believe Christ. See, this is a trick that the liberals will play, isn't it? Uh, this is what the modernists will say. If you believe in what Christ teaches, well, well, then you have the essence. The Apostle Paul is saying we have to believe and take hold of the person of Christ. And yes, we are called to practice our faith. Yes, we are called to live out of gratitude. But we have to take hold of the person of Christ. If we're just taking hold of his teachings, and really, it doesn't matter if Christ is crucified. It doesn't matter if Christ is raised from the dead. As long as we find the teachings of Christ, that should be sufficient. And Paul's saying that's not the case. If we are not taking hold of Christ in his person, we are still under the curse of the law. So we return then to that question where we began. Is a cross of Christ so essential? I mean, really, is this doctrine so necessary for the Christian life? If we don't believe that Christ is a God-man who has died upon the cross, one who never transgressed the covenant promises of God, one who never failed, one who actively obeyed, one who was declared righteous, one who uh, was sentenced to death and then was hung upon a tree as a covenant breaker, when he never transgressed the covenant, if we don't believe that, then we're still under the curse. And so the cross of Christ, to be very plain and simple is absolutely essential to our Christian faith. If we don't believe that Christ died on the cross, we are still in our sins. We are people who are the most to be pitied. We cannot be declared sons of Abraham. We are not those who are the Gentiles who receive the promised spirit as sons of Abraham. But as we take hold of Christ by faith, and we take hold of his person, who he is, what he has done, the person who is seated in glory in heaven, united to him having life, then we can be assured that the curse has been taken away. We have moved from a very uncomfortable, terrible, pitiful, cursed position deserving death in hell. That has been removed, taken from us. Christ has become that curse in our place, even as he's done no wrong. And as a result of that, his righteousness is our righteousness. And so when Christ is raised from the dead, it's the heavenly courts overturning what the earthly courts have done in our miscarriage of justice. So let us not then fall into a mindset of thinking, I just need to follow the teachings of Christ. Yes, we do need to follow the teachings of Christ. He is the word of God. He is the word incarnate. But we have to also embrace the person of Christ. We are justified, declared righteous, have life as we take hold of Christ in faith. And as we walk by that faith, we seek to live as living sacrifices, offering ourselves out of gratitude as we walk in the power of his spirit. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.